Welcome to The Way the World Works, where the trusted team behind the Tuttle Twins books tackles current events, hot topics, and fun ideas to help your family find clarity in a world full of confusion. Hey, Brittany. Hi, Connor. I was a Boy Scout when I was younger. My dad was actually the Scout Master, so we would go on a lot of camping trips. And we actually just recently, with my own kids, went on a camping trip, and there was some litter. There was some just, you know, garbage that was um, in the campsite and around. And and so, you know, my kids just walked past it, and I realized, ah, teaching opportunity, right? Always... (laughs) You know, leave the campground cleaner than than you found it. That's what my dad always taught me growing up. And and just respect for the environment and taking care of Mother Earth and nature. And just we had a lot of fun, you know, hiking and, and going around seeing the sites um, where we went camping. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of nature. In fact, I know you went camping uh, just recently, right? Didn't you go up into the mountains somewhere? Just this weekend. And I don't usually like nature. Nobody, I hope nobody gets mad at me for that. I'm not a big, I'm an indoor kind of girl, but I really enjoyed being camp, like going out camping this past weekend. It's beautiful. I think it has its place. There's some people obviously who love it way more than others. I'm kind of like, you know, every like, you know, six months or so I'll get my like intense nature experience and then I'll go back to my bed. Um, Every year for me, once a year. A year. All right. That's (laughs) that's all good. That's all good. So I want to talk a little bit today about environmentalism. We had a, a episode, I don't know, weeks, months ago, talking about all the isms, right? Mm -hmm. And libertarianism and communism and socialism. Well, environmentalism is kind of its own ism in a way. And, you know, this issue about the environment gets a lot of people riled up because a lot of people care about, you know, nature and the earth and, and, uh, you know, natural resources like, you know, oil and water Water, and land and things like that. So, um, you know, This podcast is uh, mainly for the young people, but then also their parents. So the young person that came to mind, of course, on this was uh, Greta Thunberg, right? She's the, I I believe she's Swedish, if I'm I'm, uh, remembering right. But she's become like the face of environmentalism in the past year. She's gone around like shaming adults, like literally saying shame on you. Yelling, she's very scary. (laughs) Yeah, getting upset, like being invited to like the United Nations and all these like global government meetings. And she's become like, the face that environmentalists have pushed forward to say, ah, here, you can like speak for the rising generation and how we're destroying the world. And, you know, we need to save the world to, you know, be able to save young people. And um, she's actually like blamed free markets uh, for environmental problems. Even, I believe using the phrase something, and this was translated, I believe, maybe she said in English, but she called, you know, them fairy tales of eternal economic growth. Um, to make this argument that, you know, economic growth comes at the expense of the environment. And so, well, which is always funny because like she, I believe she doesn't like fly in planes, right? So no, she makes she this big show. trains and boats, but the, yeah. <laughs> those also ruin the environment. Exactly, <laughs> right? Like you had to like tear down trees and, yep. you know, coal for the engine and electricity. Well, and- some of it was staged. I think there's one photo of her where she was like sitting on a, a train floor because she was just like, oh, things are so overbooked here. And then as it turns out, she had a first class seat. She was just posing for right. her. <laughs> totally. Or like even being on a boat, it's like you criticize free markets, but look at the clothes you're wearing and yep. the boat that you're on. Like without markets, you wouldn't even have these the ability to like get out of your hometown, right? Let alone like, you know, go gallivant across the world. So uh, this, 
she is by no means an exception. That's important to point out that we're not going to pick on Greta right now. The point is not to you know pick on this girl who's become this face of environmental environmentalism so much as talking about how there's this tendency by people who claim to care about the earth, the environment, um, but they become people who start attacking capitalism. They they make these claims, Brittany, that you know, humanity is going to run out of precious resources. You've probably seen some of these stories over the decades, right? These like claims that this isn't new, right? Yeah. This well, is like so what's an example? What's so an there example? was who wrote the book? There was a book called The Population Bomb. And I can't oh, remember right. who wrote it, but that was in this was it actually maybe before the 60s, because I think they were predicting that by 1970s, like the world would be we would have to, like the world would be over. We'd have too many people. There wouldn't be That's enough right. resources for all of them. The other guy was Thomas Malthus. Is that you say his last name? Malth- mm-hmm. Malthus? Yeah, he, I, he wasn't the population bomb, but he also had this idea that that if we didn't do something now, you know, that we were going to run out of resources, that we were all going to starve to death. And none of this stuff has come true. Not even the famous Al Gore inconvenient truth things have come true. I think by now we were supposed to have melted ice caps. We're all supposed to be underwater. Yeah, Al, Al Gore was a past vice president who is an environmentalist. And and uh, yeah, that was the name of his documentary, right? An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, he made this film with these predictions, as you're pointing out, that yeah, the ice caps Never are going to melt and everything's going to flood. And yeah, like it doesn't come true. The The book you mentioned, The Population Bomb, was written by a gentleman named Paul Ehrlich That's right. um, in 1968. And, uh, and it was widely sold. I mean, this was just uh, took off. And, and yeah, there's going to be famine in the 1970s and 1980s. You know, there's going to be major like social societal problems and chaos and riots and of course, these things never come true. Why do you think, Brittany, that these claims are made? Like, it seems like it's always scaring people yes. and making these dire predictions. Why do you suppose that is? Well, they're not wrong per se. What I mean by that is these people are just looking at it wrong. So they see like a pie chart. We've all seen like a pie chart, right? And if you think of all the different resources in a pie, and like you think of them as like slivers of the pie, if you don't know any better, you might think, okay, well, we only have a certain amount of resources. And if we add more people, but we're not adding more resources, we're going to eat up all this pie, right? We're going to use it all. But what people don't understand and what the free market does is it doesn't take more resources. It actually creates more slices of pie. So so we're each now doing something. We've talked about division of labor. We've talked about specialization on past episodes. And that's what people do, right? So the more people we have, the more we're actually creating new things for each other, right? So the free market is actually making this problem better. But these people like to use fear tactics, as you said, to kind of make us think that there's like this fixed amount, that we only have what we have right now and nothing, you know, if we don't use it carefully, it's all going to be gone. But that's just not true. What What's really interesting to me is, is yeah, the consistency with which these predictions fail. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even a, a Twitter account called the Pessimists Archive. Where I love they, them. They're great. Yeah. Yeah. They catalog all these failed predictions, not just about like natural resources and the environment, just in general technology and and all kinds of things about the changing world. They'll go back and find from this newspaper in 1905, this, you know, dire prediction that, you know, obviously didn't come true. And it's kind of funny to look back at, but it portrays the point you and I are trying to make. And that is these predictions, these dire predictions so often don't uh, come true, but they still are widely believed and people buy into these arguments that, you know, now Greta and like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a congresswoman and others like her, have been making claims that 
you know, we only have 12 years to save the earth before it's too late. And then you're always like, well, well, what, uh, what happens after that timeline? And why should we believe you when all these other predictions don't come true? But they're using an important psychological point uh, called urgency. So yep. in marketing, I'll, I'll use Tuttle Twins as an example. When I tell people, hey, we're going to have this huge sale, but the sale ends on Saturday. And today, let's say it's Wednesday. I've now created urgency where you feel motivated to do something um, you know, that you otherwise might not have done or sooner than you might uh, have done it. And the, the urgency compels you, motivates you to action. And so when you get Greta or these other people saying the earth only has 12 years, or when you have Al, uh, Al Gore saying, you know, the polar ice caps are going to melt, they're, they're creating urgency. They're creating artificial urgency. They're, they're making a claim and saying, this is urgent because of my prediction. And it motivates people to action. That's why they do it. They hope that people kind of, you know, do something that they otherwise wouldn't. And yet the problem is it's kind of like Boy Who Cried Wolf, except actually, Brittany, I kind of feel like it's the opposite of Boy Who Cried Wolf because <laughs> in that story, they stopped listening to the boy when he kept lying. And yet it feels like all these crazy predictions don't come true. And yet, you know, then Greta or AOC, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or someone else comes along and makes another prediction. And there's a ton of people out there who are like, oh, yeah, we, we do need to worry about that. It is going to get bad. It's like the more the boy cries wolf, the, the more we believe it, even though we keep being lied to. Right. Like it's like the opposite of logic. But no, I, there, I think you're right. <laughs> there's even a quote, I believe, from it was either uh, Adolf Hitler or I believe it was Hitler himself or one of his subordinates. But I think it was Hitler. And he said something like, you know, you all you have to do is repeat a lie over and over and then people believe it's true. That was Goebbels. So his head of propaganda. Oh, in right. fact, we're going to talk about propaganda on another episode soon. But uh, so I'm sure he'll come up again. But Goebbels, yeah, was Hitler's head of propaganda. That's right. It was him. Yeah. And so there are people in power who know this and are like, hey, all we have to do is tell people over and over that, you know, the climate is changing or the world is, you know, going to go uh, to pot or you know, there's there's problems ahead if we don't act. And yeah, it's just so interesting. Another thing I want to bring up, Brittany, is um, when they attack the free market, you know, when, when Greta Thunberg blames capitalism and blames markets and which is really just people's choices, right, in terms of what they want to buy and exchange and so forth, um, what they're actually saying is that government is the solution, right? Mm -hmm. and And this isn't obviously hard to like, interpret because they're actively saying we need all these laws and we need all these programs and we need the government to do all these things. They're actively asking for government because they claim that like people on their own aren't doing anything. And I've always found interesting. There's a story of the American bison that I think is really on point, really helpful for us when we talk about this type of thing. So the, the bison or buffalo, they used to number in like the tens of millions spanning almost the you know, the entire United States. I mean, they were just everywhere. And they were hunted, you know, for food or, you know, their their skin, their hair, other resources. Um, and they faced near extinction in the late 19th century. So the late 1800s, when there was just a lot more demand for their meat and their hide. And so there was just widespread killing. I mean, you would see like out on the trail and the train, just carcasses that were there that maybe they were stripped of their hide or whatever. And left a rot. It was just widespread killing of the buffalo to the point where, as I said, initially it was like tens of millions. Um, it went down to just the hundreds, which is just crazy to think about crazy. That, that, that change, right? And um, 
so what what solved it? Because obviously you can go to like Yellowstone or elsewhere, you can still see buffalo. They didn't go extinct or they they easily could have, but it wasn't government, right? It was a handful of these private ranchers who gathered together some of the remaining bison to preserve them and and grow their numbers. And so, you know, fast forward a century later and privately owned bison right? These privately owned animals have exceeded, I think, like over 150, 160,000 of these animals. So these these private ranchers who obviously, you know, they have their own uh, uses. They might still kill some and harvest uh, hide or, or meat or whatever, but they've been able to grow them to be over, you know, uh, almost 200,000, if not more at this point. Whereas the bison that are kind of community owned or out in nature, federal government lands and so forth, um, have continued to be decimated, and now they're under 10,000 in number. And so what's really interesting is like, here's the free market where private ranchers have an interest in protecting this animal, making sure that they can continue to have access to it in the future. And so they have an interest in making sure that it's protected, that it's safe, that other people aren't trying to kill it, and, and to kind of manage that because they have an incentive right? It's their own personal incentive. incentives before. Exactly. And so, whereas when it's just out on the land, if I'm out there, Ooh, I can get the hide. I have no incentive to kind of watch out for the broader bison numbers or Buffalo numbers. And so I'm much more uh, willing to kind of cause harm. And, And there's a term for this. This is a new term probably to a lot of our listeners. Um, I know Brittany, you know, this, this is called the tragedy of the commons. And I'll, I'll give you another example that'll make me look kind of silly, but it's what comes to mind when I think of tragedy of the commons. And this might make me look like a, a bad person in some people's eyes or uh, not as good. I have two dogs. When my dogs poop on my lawn, I am definitely cleaning up that poop. <laughs> I don't want to step in it. But when I take my dogs to the park and they poop somewhere, there's a little part of me that's like, maybe, maybe no one saw, maybe, (laughs) maybe I don't need to walk all the way over there and get it. Do I really need to do that? There's other poop here. Other people have let their dogs poop. So maybe it's okay that I don't. And those thoughts start to creep in because it's not my park. It's not my property. I don't have the same incentives. And, and that property is commonly held, right? It's the community, the government. Um, and so that's the tragedy of the commons. When we all own something together, no one has the incentive to kind of make sure that it's going to be taken care of. No, exactly. And we see that happen all the time. And and the thing is, though, just like you were talking about with your own lawn, people are more likely to take care of things that they have a stake in, right? That There's a, a term called skin in the game. People are more likely to help things when they have skin in the game, which is you brought up incentives, which I think is really important. So there are two kids who are actually not kids or college students. So they're a little older than kids, but they're actually putting their own skin in the game, right? They're actually helping do this by creating their own free market solutions, which I think is really cool. One girl, her name is Maria Rose Belding. She started like a phone app, like on your smartphone, where restaurants who would have food waste, a lot of leftover food at the end of the night, instead of throwing it away, they are connected with homeless shelters and other places who need to feed people. So instead of there being all this food waste, which a lot of people who are environmentalists think are contributing to you know, carbon footprint and things like that, they now uh, connect people who are in need of the food Therefore, they're eliminating all the waste. So this is really great. Everybody wins. There's another guy. His name is Cameron Ross. He's also a college student. 
he created eco-friendly straws. So where the government came in and banned all straws, or some in some places, California, I think, was the main place where they banned them. But this kid was actually like, hey, I can create biodegradable straws where it won't matter anymore because this is actually going to just go back into the earth. So there's a lot of really cool ways that people, young and old, are coming up with solutions to help protect our environment, which I think is great. I wish I came prepared for this episode uh, with the information, but um, and maybe in the show notes page we can include think, it. Yeah. I- because I just thought of this, but I think it was also a fairly young person who uh, invented this way to clean up seawater from all the yes. trash. It's yes. it's like this whirlpool effect that has this like floating thing out in the water that basically whirlpools the water down so that the trash gets like sucked into these little receptacles that they can then clean up. And there's so much trash out in the ocean. There's even like a like a trash, like a floating trash island they have like a nickname for where like the the whirlpools of the whole not the whirlpools but like the currents of the ocean have kind of sent all the trash into this big floating island um which is just nuts to think about (laughs) and so like here's yeah another young person who's like hey i came up with something and that's that's the private market that's not a bunch of government bureaucrats sitting around saying hmm how should we solve this problem right it's someone who had the incentive and the interest and the motivation to to go do it so we'll we'll dig up that link we will post that on the show notes page. Uh, we'll link to the stories that Brittany mentioned, um, as well as the story about the bison that I mentioned. Good uh, follow-up reading if you're interested in learning a little bit more about some market solutions and some past uh, experiences and examples of how individuals have tried to tackle big problems because that that incentive matters. When we have the ability, think of like an Elon Musk, right? He's trying to reduce dependency on fossil fuels. And so there's incentives there to try and make you know, cleaner fuel and try and find ways to reduce, you know, your carbon footprint, if that's a a concern to you. Um, There's now private solutions, you know, people trying to pursue that. So uh, despite Greta Thunberg complaining about capitalism and the free market, these are actually the very things that help because when we get into these community solutions, these government solutions, that tragedy of the commons happens and you don't really get the right uh, solutions in place. So check out the show notes page, tuttletwins.com slash podcast. Scroll down until you find our environmentalism episode. Make sure you uh, subscribe and share. We'd love to uh, get a lot more people listening. We have actually a ton of people listening to this podcast, which is super exciting. Uh, We're very amped up by how many of you are subscribed. So super fun. Brittany, as always, thanks for chatting and we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to The Way the World Works. Make sure your family is subscribed and check out TuttleTwins.com for more awesome content.